This is Thomas DePolo. This is Max. This is Kevin Ham. Hey, this is Jake Cook. Hi, this is William Roy. You're listening to The Green Box. recently got a PDF copy of the uh, Stygian Fox Kickstarter Occam's Razor, which I've been talking about for a long time. I think it might have been what prompted our first discussion of uh, scenarios without the mythos in it. So, But now that it's here, I figured we might want to revisit the topic. If I remember if I remember right, the, the premise before was um, make sure that you know your players well and then do this maybe once or twice, if I remember right. Yes. So the issue is that once or twice is a fun inversion of the expectations. Any more than that is a violation of the social contract that you go into when you have a Delta Green game. And one of the questions that I was going to ask based on... I've only read the first module in this module pack, and my question was going to be, is it different to do something like that in Delta Green versus Call of Cthulhu. Because in Delta Green, not only out of character is your premise, you will be investigating a supernatural horror mystery, but in Delta Green also in character, your game characters are interacting with the game world based on the expectation that there is a supernatural horror mystery. That is the express purpose of the Delta Green organization. Unless you're playing, you know, like an introductory scenario or in a different agency, you can make, you can mess with the premise in Delta Green. But let's let's just talk about whether playing Delta Green the game versus playing Call of Cthulhu, you would would play by different rules. So I guess the first clarification is that this is a scenario pack for Call of Cthulhu, so it wasn't written explicitly for Delta Green. Um, with that said, I I would say no, not necessarily. Um, because it's a horror game, it's not necessarily a Cthulhu mythos game. Uh, I would also go so far as to say, like, there's some things in here, like, like cannibalism that aren't attached to any, like, Cthulhu mythos or anything. I think that it's fair to make people roll sanity for that sort of stuff, too. Uh, it's unnatural. It's, it's unexplainable. You know, like, I, I, I don't think it's a violation of the social contract, I guess, to, to answer your question. That, well, that wasn't my, my question. My question was, is there a difference in doing it in Call of Cthulhu versus doing it in Delta Green? Oh, it's just I know then. Okay, so your, your, your contention is that, um, a, that, uh, despite the fact that one is explicitly designed with the premise of having an investigator organization whose express purpose is to go after mythos phenomena versus one being sort of a, a almost setting agnostic. You can run it in different time periods. You can run it with different uh, premises for the player characters that both of those should be equally amenable to a tr- uh, to, to running scenarios that do not have any supernatural elements. Stygian Fox releases always have like a very defined time period and setting like this one and a lot of their more famous releases are set in the modern day. So it's not just any time period, any setting. And I think some of the supplemental materials for their modern day releases also have frame scenarios where you're private investigators working for a certain person or your journalists working for a certain news source. And I think either of those could work pretty well here. At least the first scenario, the ideal player character strikes me as being like an ex-cop turned private detective. And if I recall correctly, they have in other scenario packs 
basically written stuff that is not technically for Delta Green, but is essentially written with that type of organization in mind? There is a handful of scenarios, yeah, that are written from the perspective of you are probably going to be playing federal agents who either are encountering this encountering the supernatural for the first time or you have some sense of what's going okay. on. Okay. Yeah, it's a lot of nodding and, and uh like winking about, you know, if you're playing an organization that does this wink wink. You wouldn't even necessarily need that hand-wavy framing device, though. I mean, if a supernatural mystery can come to the attention of mundane members of the public, well, how, how the fuck do you guys think Delta Green finds out about stuff? It's sort of like, um, let's say that you're a sniper, and you shoot someone, and you think that you've shot and killed them, right? But you gotta go out and, and confirm the kill. It's sort of like that. This is something Delta Green might send you out on uh, to figure out whether or not this is their business. And uh, you know, you might you might go and then say, "Oh, this is all mundane." Uh, but while I'm here, let me patch this up, or you know, something okay. like that. So you're positing as because because I was gonna I was gonna ask that question because normally in a case like this we'd go through all of the all the modules and and talk about like specific things that stood out to us from each one but I think it's fair to say that most of us have probably only read the first one if we read any of them I've only uh, I've only read halfway through actually at this point yeah <laughs> I mean I think it's more of a, of a general jumping off point I think it's kind of important especially in games in Delta Green where like if if every time you sit down with your party you're fighting the biggest, baddest mythos you can find. Like, eventually that gets kind of tired. So, and, like, think about, like, some of the good, some of the greatest, like, X-Files episodes. Like, yeah, Mulder and Scully were out there investigating paranormal things, but not every time they opened a door was there something paranormal behind it, because that's not how, like, reality works. But would you say the greatest episodes are, are like that, with a mundane threat at the end of the day? I would and have said that in the past. Kevin, you stole my talking <laughs> okay. point. Which, cause, which, uh, which ones are you referring to? Because I actually don't. The cockroach one. That's good. That's a good start. And I was also actually, just as I said that, I thought of um, Home, the one where it's just like a gross cycle of incest. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. It's like the hills yeah, have eyes sort one. of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's important to have, you know, between every ma- adventure where you fight Cthulhu with a boat, you're like, all right, well, there's this, like, pack of wild dogs. You know, there's this mysterious deaths. Go investigate it, and you show up, and you're like, all right, well, it's not mythos but you're like, again, as, as Jake said, kind of once you're there, you kind of wrapped up in it. And again, you also have to, if you just showed up and you were like, oh, dogs did this, and then left, it's like, well, are the dogs being driven by something supernatural? You know, you kind of have to investigate it all the way to make, to, like, put a lid on it, make sure it's not something else leaking out, you know? So I, almost, so I almost think like it's Im- imperative that you run some Delta Green games in a campaign setting, at least, that are not supernatural, because you want players to always be asking, you, like you want investigators to always be wondering, like, what's the supernatural hook here? You know, could this be mundane? Because if you always hit them with supernatural entities, then they'll never ask, oh, might this be, just be mundane? Because they know that's not how you run games, and then that takes away that whole, like, fun part about investigating. And the thing about that is... The way the first scenario is structured really enables that because there's no place where they really lean in on this is the thing you're going to do to trick people into thinking it's mythos stuff going on. There's like five or six different places where it says if you really want to lay on the the red herrings, here's where you can get them to expect a certain thing. Like one of the guys has a textbook about witchcraft in his dorm room. Yeah. Uh, there's rumors that this old abandoned asylum was taken over by the government and used as a secret prison for cultists. One thing that I 
disliked very much about this is that they did the arc dream thing where um, some of the handouts are tilted just slightly at an angle. Thankfully, they didn't do that with any of the handouts that have text on them, but they did it with some of the images. Yeah, it's definitely meant to be like you know printed like it's meant to be like bought as a book and ran from, which makes it tough online. They usually have a separate PDF with the handouts on their own, so we don't have access to that right now. But I'm sure that's out there. Yeah, it's it's usually a thing they do. Um, but I wanted to talk about the first one in the pack since it seems that's that's the one that we uh, we've all read. I really liked the way that there would be little boxes on the sides that gave you um, cinematic inspiration as one to show you some movies that help you get the feel of the scenario. Like I, I, like I wonder if I was summarizing it, I would have said like, you know, Cujo at an insane asylum is basically this one. Cujo at an abandoned insane asylum. Uh, But then it gives you like a big list of movies to follow along with. And then uh, a couple of the other things are about like uh, adding to the atmosphere of it. Like, um, you know, when you're at the at the college campus, there's some foreshadowing because there's a mean police dog uh, in the police officer there at the ca- of the college campus. Or like later on, there's another one where it's like, uh, have one of your players roll luck. If they fail luck, they step in dog shit. You know, just like that sort of foreshadowing. But the real uh, the, the thing I really like that made it stand out is that it tells you straight up, this is about being isolated in the woods. This is about feeling helpless. That's the sort of horror that the scenario is going for, and I think it nails it really well because it tells you how to do it. I think that dogs – I find dogs frightening in real life because 99% of them are harmless, but 1% will just bite you out of nowhere. Like, you'll just be walking by one on the street and it'll bite you. Uh, 100% of the dogs in this scenario will bite you out of nowhere. So. Well, so that's the issue is that I'm, I'm wondering if – my actual real-world rationale for finding dogs unnerving is something that can be translated into a horror scenario because, uh, like, 1% of 100 things being hostile in a game is not necessarily interesting gameplay. It's not necessarily scary. Uh, so I think that my personal reservation about this type of animal, uh, specifically the way that totally harmless behavior can collapse into a malign state, is something that's harder to replicate in a game. And I think this one is really more like, um, it's almost like Resident Evil 4, where you've got to, like, you know, barricade yourself in and then hit them one at a time as they come through the windows. And it's it's more about being trapped in a place by a hostile force that controls the environment around you. Yeah, it's uh, definitely some survival horror to it. Once you get out there and you realize that you're stuck because your vehicle is broken, you have the choice of either, like, exploring the asylum and or, like, making a break trying to get back home. But either way, you're going to experience the scary parts of it, the the spooky dogs and stuff. I have a question about this, the, the design of this module, and I'll, I'll I'll frame it in such a way that um, even if you haven't read this exact paragraph, it can still be an interesting point of discussion. Uh, this module specifically says that the number of dogs that attack should be based on a multiple of the number of players. I think it's like two two dogs per player plus some remainder number of dogs. Right, yeah. It, and it does that. It changes from time to time, yeah. Do you do you feel this, – this, throw this out to anyone. Do you feel that um, – th- th- this ties into our adjusting difficulty discussion, I think, that we may or may not have had. And if not, then delete this part of the audio. Uh, do you feel that the number of hostile NPCs in a scenario should be tuned to the number of players or to the player's 
um, specific abilities, like, you know, if they bring a machine gun, there's more guys? Or do you think it should be a fixed number that exists independently of the players? I definitely think, with especially with games like Delta Green, where sometimes you can run a game for two people or even one person, the you need to have like scalable encounters, which are like you know n plus one or whatever. Um, and you see that trope in a lot of um, like board games that deal with um, this kind of you know milieu, like Eldritch Horror and Arkham Horror oh, yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, where it's like you know you need to find you know x number of clues to, to close you know to finish the adventure, and x number is the number of investigators. Because it would it would really suck if you if the if the number of dogs was always twelve and it was like geared for like five players and two players show up like they're just they're just hosed you know and it's not very exciting. It's hard to balance Delta Green though because let's say that my character is a, a former Navy SEAL with ninety percent firearms and he shows up with a stolen you know machine gun or whatever then like the dogs aren't as scary to him right? Right. This scenario kind of is built around the idea that. You are not predominantly going to have firearms. Maybe one or two people will have firearms, but you're mostly just working with your bare hands, and anything can scrounge up. And we we talked at length about like so, like your guy with ninety firearms is going to suck at other things. So you know, I feel like I feel like it, you want to balance the encounter for a number of investigators, you know, roughly, and you don't want to try to do things like Max had suggested, where like all right, if they bring big guns, add more monsters, because that gets a lot a lot more fiddly. It's like. The Navy SEAL with a 90 firearms probably isn't going to get some of the harder investigative clues. So he's at a disadvantage there. This is definitely a scenario where you want to um, bean count, like definitely count like the number of bullets that they have for that reason. Um, there's like a good segment in it where it's like if they're inside the asylum and they're trying to get to the car, uh, the dogs are surrounding the car, which is like straight up a scene out of Cujo. Like, she can't get to the car because the dog is guarding the car. And they said, you know, like, the driveway is far enough from the asylum that it's it's difficult shots for someone with a pistol or a smaller caliber weapon. So there's, I guess there's other things that you could do to kind of take away the, the power of the gun, so to speak. I think I would agree with Kevin in that I'd be more inclined to adjust the number of enemies in any given combat encounter based on action economy than I would to scale it up or down based on what gear is available. Like, Oblivion this ain't. My feeling when designing anything has always, and maybe not always been, but is developing towards um, find believable ways for the game world to push back at the players if they adopt a more aggressive posture. So, and this is not going to probably fit with this type of scenario, but like if the players are known to run around with machine guns, then intelligent human enemies fighting the players will respond by deploying more dangerous threats. And so that way you can kind of organically balance based not only on their skills and equipment, but on the way they behave. Because you shouldn't punish someone for having a gun in a safe somewhere and a 90% skill if they actually play the game in an intelligent fashion and, you know, cooperate with the other players, cooperate with the NPCs, and use good tradecraft and so on. You want it to feel like a believable reaction to someone going off guns blazing. One of the things that I like about it is that it has... uh the mundane setbacks that take away control and make the bad situations just kind of downright scary. Like in this first one, uh, you go out to this place in the middle of nowhere where there's no cell phone service, and then you get a flat tire or a couple of flat tires. And so it's basically up to you to survive or to escape there. 
like a lot of my a lot of horror movies do that like i was thinking of um do you remember the mid 2000s movie jeepers creepers with uh justin long no what's it about uh well they their car breaks down in the middle of nowhere it's like a guy and his sister and there's a, a creepy scarecrow monster uh Jeepers Creepers, where'd you get those peepers? And, you know, it's just that sort of thing. You're out in the middle of nowhere. There's a spooky thing going on, and you got to either survive or escape uh, or, you know, figure out what's going on. It's like that, uh, we talked about that before. That was, uh, was it Solve, Survive, or Save from the uh, yeah. the Mothership guy? Yeah. And you can only choose, like, one or two. Yeah, one and a half. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a reason it's a pretty well-worn horror trope. So, like, for for that reason, I, I'd say this book's pretty good. You know, it, if nothing else, it gives you really good investigative frameworks for horror scenarios. Like, you could you could pick this book up, read the things, run a couple of them, and, and learn just that sort of structure of, like, how to create horror. Because I, I think this book does it really well. Yeah, I think that's this is actually a good one for that uh, solve, survive, save. Because you can just get yourself out. You can find the one surviving kid and talk to him and try to figure out what happened or like or save him or try and get the remains of the other kids i guess but then if you bring him if you bring that one kid along more dogs are gonna go after you because they want strength in numbers um some of the other takeaways from some of the other scenarios in this is that they have npcs with valid reasons to engage or disengage with the agents uh one of the later ones there are two different security guards at this museum where like something bad happens at the museum and um it even tells you like midway through the investigation like if if the players figure out what's happening, the security guards shift from their investigative mode to their damage control mode because they fear a lawsuit or, you know, a bad reputation for their employer, that sort of thing. So that is another uh, a good good thing to take away from this. That would actually make it harder if you're playing Delta Green agents because then once they know you're feds, they're just going to stonewall you the whole time. They're not going to want to talk to you at all. As opposed to, like, if you're just friends of the person who needs help or a private investigator or something. Or if you've lied to them and they figure out you've lied to them, you know, then they'd be... Anyways, the, the NPCs in that and that one, which is, uh, I think that one's called Eye of the Beholder. It's got the security guards in it. it they, they shift, which is cool. The NPC should be reactive to the player's... And reactive to the situation as things change. Melon, when we were discussing this beforehand, you had uh, the concern: uh, why should Delta Green give a shit about this sort of things? Oh, oh, you mean you mean like how do we introduce how do we introduce the 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 mystery to Delta Green? Yeah, what's the hook to make this a Delta Green scenario yeah. as opposed to just a horror scenario? Because plain old plain old disappearances, which is how a lot of these seem to start, aren't going to cut it. So how do we add that secret sauce? Yeah, I was going to turn the spotlight to Tom because Tom has a cool scenario with Italian witches in the mountain. And the hook for that one, uh, Tom, you want to talk about it? It's the same as a lot of Delta Green scenarios. It's like a kid goes missing. The kid is the kid of a higher up in Delta Green. So he basically just tells you to investigate this, whether or not it actually turns out to be supernatural. And it turns out it is supernatural. But a lot of Delta Green scenarios are like that, like... The music from a darkened room is really only a Delta Green scenario because the last guy who died was a Delta Green agent who happened to be looking into it. Uh, control copy. The only reason it's a scenario is because the accused murderer is a, a former Delta Green agent. You can get a lot of mileage out of just, hey, one of the suspects or victims or general 
persons of interest is attached to Delta Green some way. Go in there and make sure this doesn't have our smell on it. That's very specific. Like, uh, this person was affiliated with us and something's happened to them. So now, yeah, go do the, go do the sniff test. See if it was just, you know, they fell off the wagon or whatever, or if like a deep one got them. And I can actually see a way of doing that first scenario that doesn't use a person for that, but it'll still work. One, like I mentioned before, one of the red herrings for this scenario is that there are rumors that this abandoned building you're eventually looking into uh, was bought up by the U.S. government during the 20s and it ended up becoming a secret prison for different cultists. And it lists a couple of real-world cults, but it also lists, like, the bootleggers from Innsmouth, the, like, cult of the Black Pharaoh, a witch cult, different, like, mythos stuff listed right next to real cults. And so if you want to treat that as a fact, you could have Delta Green say, hey, we got a sensor going off around this building that apparently used to be ours, but we don't know what it was for anymore. Go check it out. So I'm not saying you shouldn't think about where your like Delta Green investigation needs to come from, but I will say that I think writers and handlers think about it more than players. Because like players are there to play a game, so if you give them the flimsiest you know, precept for it. They either engage or they go home. You know, we talked about that under, you know, shark jumping. So, I mean, I've had several scenarios where it's just like, yeah, like there was some signal intercept that mentioned this. Go check it out. And like, you know, nobody, I mean, sometimes it's nice to have stuff for players to back investigate, but you can also just be like, you got, you got to go check out this uh, old sand asylum because, because Delta Green said so. The issue that I have with, with a lot of these like non mythos type scenarios is that the hook is weak. It is something that, is not immediately like the players doing something. It is either them sitting patiently while they get a briefing, or it is a small piece of information that is essentially go out here and wander until you find what the plot is. What I am looking for is a... Because if you recall the advice in the Handler's Guide, we had our criticisms of it, but one of the things that it was very strong on was start the scenario with something immediate and attention-grabbing. The first thing you think of is the hook. It's the unexplained thing that gets Delta Green involved. So how do we take that and do it for adventures that do not have, at the end of the day, do not have anything in them unexplainable? What's the secret? So with, with the with the dog Zanzam scenario, I, mean, I think it's easy, right? Your players sit down at the table, you know, get everybody's name, introduce everybody, and they're like, all right, you know, it's dark out. The gravel crunches underneath your car wheels as you pull over to some sand asylum. Like, you just start them there, and then they're, then they're already stuck there doing something about it. I, I thought about that for one of the later scenarios, actually. It's like, start this one out with uh, the one I'm referencing is Frozen Footsteps, but in this anthology collection, it says, you know, it started off with, like, this NPC missing a uh, a dinner date with your, or, like, a friend lunch date with your uh, with your player character. And then, like, after a few days, maybe your character gets curious and, like, he doesn't show up. And I was like, no, this is fucking bullshit. Just do it in Medea Res. Like, uh, in Medea Res. Uh, that's where you go yeah, that's crazy. Ty- that's Tyler Perry's Delta Green. Oh, I was I was going with a different Medea. I was going to talk about burning down the house and murdering the children, but that's... <laughs> so that's- uh, I feel like <laughs> Tyler Perry's Medea is way more uh, sensible for Delta Green. If you start it in Media Res, or you start it with a very like basic pr- pretense, and your players have a fucking awesome time, nobody at the end of an awesome scenario is going to be like, yeah, but it was really silly how we got there. They're going to be like, oh man, the dogs. Oh, I can't believe you know we barely made it to the car. Uh, so you know, like it was so sick in the dark. Like 
if you do if the game is good then you're you're fine the issue with 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 the very aggressive framing is that if you have built a character whose whose skills center around careful investigation prior to action and you consider that to be gameplay then you will be very unhappy if you're immediately thrown into a combat encounter with 30 to 50 feral dogs because I generally fall on your side of very aggressive framing to get the players to the fun stuff, but the issue is that Delta Green is a game that is built with the assumption that part of gameplay is interacting with bureaucracy, pulling records together, and doing careful investigation before going kinetic. Like there's whole class, there's whole character classes like the program manager character classes. There's whole professions like the program manager whose express purpose is to do that. If you circle, we circle back around. This just kind of goes back to like knowing your characters uh knowing your players and like what they expect out of the game and you can always toss flashbacks in if, if they want to if, if they have a question they want answered you can be like yeah you know well your character is you know the program manager he you know looks up ahead of time here's here's what he found you know that's a fun way to do it i don't think um unnatural unexplainable are synonyms Okay, so I think you can have an unexplained weird thing that's not natural. This 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 is what I was hoping you guys would 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 help me with is how can I make a really exciting hook for someone to investigate that at the end of the day has a mundane explanation behind it but appears to be Delta Green business. Well, any police procedural or detective show or detective story, anything like that, they all have things that are unexplained. They all have things that are mysteries, right? So, really any of the tropes in the the mystery solving genre, any any of the devices you'd use there should be applicable to a game about usually about investigating the supernatural. You guys want a lore deep cut from Resident Evil? The initial the the initial outbreak at the Arclay Mountain Laboratory was an outbreak of feral zombie dogs because the zombie dog trainer hadn't like been feeding them properly. So they break out and they spread uh, T virus everywhere. And so the quote unquote Arclay Mountain murders. There were a few zombie attacks, but the vast majority of those were feral zombie dog attacks. And so when the when the stars team deploys to the Arclay Mountains, it is with the assumption that they will be engaging in anti-feral dog warfare. It's just in the ATF and or any cop. Wow. If you really wanted to do the hook, we could take this one, uh, this one that we've all read, a whole pack of trouble, and reframe it. Um, instead of it being a missing persons report, it could just be um, messages on an internet board about. Uh, the dog man of whatever this asylum's called. And then like, I was also thinking about the dog man. Yeah. Some photos of uh, a disturbed gravesite and some bones that look like they've been gnawed on. And that's enough for like the, the analysts at Delta Green to go, Ooh, I wonder if this is ghouls and then send people out there. Right. So to give a little extra context, the, the reason there are so many dogs hanging out at this place is that there was a homeless man who used to live here who would take care of them and feed them. And he died a couple of years ago, and so the pack is still just hanging around, but they've become really hungry and aggressive for food. So that's why they attack anybody who comes up to the building. Because it's an abandoned asylum, there's graffiti inside about the dog man, who's just sort of a local urban legend. Right, so that could be, I guess, like, that could be something that lingers around the nearest town. You could be asking people about the dog man if you want to build out that side of things. There's really... Just uh, if you're creative enough, there's just an infinite number of ways you could reframe a hook or a framing device, you know? Uh, there's also, like, this can be set kind of anywhere because you just need a place with the trees and a building. Um, Remoteness, so, yeah. Yeah, so you could totally, if, say, one of your characters is their 
their like I don't want to say cover identity, but like their real identity is like they're a cop or a fed. They might get this as an investigation in their regular job, and then when they do any like when they do their cursory like checking in on it, they may see some of the flags. They'd be like, "Hey, let me bring the rest of my cell in." You know, hey, probably nothing, but you know, there's just dog man angle. You never know, so let me call some of my buddies who understand that if case is ghouls, they know how to handle their shit. And if it's nothing, they'll, they'll be totally cool with it. The other way to do it is um, make the connection to the NPC more personal. Like it's it's one of the agent's bonds or it's one of the agent's bond's best friends or something like that. Make it like your kid, you know? Like- it's your kid. Yeah, your kid who's, uh, you know, who you've grown disconnected to because your bond score is only at like three. Because he's obsessed with horror movies and you've lived enough horror movies that you want none of that shit on your downtime. Yeah, there you go, but he's done gone and got himself missing the little shithead. So, and now your other bond, your wife, who's at, you know, eight, is actually concerned about him. <laughs> no, your wife's probably at like three. So you really need to <laughs> go through on this if you want to keep that bond intact. Right, because that's all the, all the players care about is keeping those <laughs> scores up. <laughs> if they go on a Delta Green adventure and, and get into some shenanigans, they'll get a bunch of Delta Green bonds and everything's fine. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Perfect. Yeah, you you did it to save your relationship with your wife, and then because you get all these Delta Green bonds with your other friends, you break that bond anyway. No, no, that's 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 the hook. As as players, metagaming players, you all realize that you need more Delta Green bonds, so you just pick some random like <laughs> missing person case that has no no. There's clearly there's no mythos involved here. Let's go there. Let's get mildly traumatized and boost all our bond scores. Another. Um... Another idea I had as like a takeaway from this sort of scenario is that it subverts players' expectations, but specifically experienced players. So I think that we're all somewhat experienced with like the Cthulhu mythos or Delta Green here or whatever. Um, if I tell you that a dog is barking, just like as part of like the description of what's happening in a scenario, does it raise your hackles a little bit? I don't know. I mean, not... Not really. Okay. Well, the answer I was looking for is that, you know, well, yeah, I know that um, the dogs are especially sensitive to the unnatural, you know, that the Amigo are afraid of dogs or that dogs can see through like a person's, uh, you know, false uh, changeling feast form, that sort of thing, right? So if you take that experienced player's expectation and then subvert it into nothing, um, uh, then you make the player realize that they've lunged out at shadows. And I think that's a fun experience still. But, um, and a, a couple of the other, uh, scenarios in this pack do that. They subvert experienced players' expectations. Like, here's a spooky statue. Um, do you think it's mythos related? The one problem I had with that, uh, bit of text in it is that it says, like, they did their Cthulhu mythos role, which is the equivalent of, like, the Delta Green unnatural role. And basically, the text tells you, no matter what it says, lie to them. Is like, if it's on a success, tell them it's this spooky monster. If they failed, tell them it's something completely off. Is this... Either way, uh, that was in the, the next one, the Eye of the Beholder. Okay, yeah, I haven't finished that one, but I, I'm i a little lukewarm on it so far because it looks like it's doing exactly that, which is what the first one doesn't and what I like about the first one. It does tell you just straight up to lie to the players to make them suspicious of the statue so that they'll try and do, like, surveillance on the statue or, or see if the you statue never, will attack You don't need to make them suspicious. They will, if they see a statue, they're going to... F- 
do 25 different things to try to figure out how mythosy it is. You don't need to ramp it up. I mean, it's, it is kind of spooky. It's like a half bull crocodile with like four arms and, uh, the base of it is damaged from where the person who was putting it into the museum, uh, damaged it, putting it in there. But like the idea that they want you to uh, have the players believe is that it comes to life and attacks people. Right. Cause the other thing I think in the description, it says it's extremely lifelike despite not depicting a creature that doesn't actually exist. It's not really stylized. It's like very anatomically correct or whatever. So it wants you to think, yeah, it can just turn itself to stone and back whenever it wants. So that's the sort of thing, like if I, uh, it's real, uh, allegory of the KV, you know, <laughs> they, they see the statue and it's the shadow on the wall, but they think it's the real thing. But I, I like what I'm seeing so far. And honestly, you could just straight up run them through as a campaign. It's about, in fact, there's even some suggestions in it for like, put this guy in an earlier thing as an information dispensary so that when he goes missing, the, the players actually give a shit about him. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. I like that. Um, do we have a broader point we want to take away from this, or are we just kind of shooting the shit? I, don't know, I guess my broadest point is, you know, you need to run scenarios without spooky mythos stuff, or else you dilute, or else you make your spooky mythos stuff not stand out against all the other spooky mythos stuff. Fair enough. I also think a good practice is to have a couple of different points where you can plug in different red herrings and then let the GM choose which one they want to utilize. Yeah, give them more tools and let them decide if they need to use them or not. Like, just uh, it, it never hurts to have too many clues for the GM to be able to hand out as needed, right? Even if some of them are red herrings. Uh, the other point I wanted to make was, like, know your players and be able to tailor the experience for them. If you think that your players would be, you know, absolutely disappointed that there was nothing mythosy at all in it, then, like, maybe don't run these. But, it, you know, just, just know your players and, and kind of tailor the things to them. Make them care about it. The other point being to... Uh, don't be afraid to like change or alter the hook or the inciting incident and the premise of like being there. Like if you need to make it happen in media res, do that too. Are, are you trying to say in medias res? In, in, no, in Midas res, uh, it's got a gold touch to it, you know? A gold touch that was brought back from the dead, right? <laughs> no, I'm talking about a woman who was scorned by Jason, and so she burns him and his children down the house. <laughs> I still think Tyler Perry's in, in Medea Res is better. I, you know, I don't refuse to fucking engage with that because it's such a bad film movie. It was just such a like the whole the whole series is just a bunch of cash cows. I don't think that's true. They're not even funny. They're not. Even funny.